James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 will be our passages this morning. Let me read it for us. James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So reads one of the most misunderstood and misappropriated verses in all of scripture. (laughs) Right up there with judge not. (laughs) This verse is often hijacked by social justice warriors as a mandate for the church to be involved in cultural transformation. In so doing, it becomes not a study of this verse, but really just pure naked manipulation. There are those who take this verse to indicate that it's the Christian's job to give material needs to the poor, or in a bigger picture, it's the church's job to combat poverty by giving its resources and assets to the poor to eliminate that kind of poverty and social injustice in the world. That's not what the verse is about. And let me just say this, if you buy into this idea that this verse is describing the church's mission to combat homelessness and combat poverty, then you are hitching the church to a failing mission. Because Jesus, the one who said he will build his church, also said, the poor you will have with you always. This verse is not some kind of social mandate for the church. It's not the Christian's duty to give money to a person on the street with a sign that says, we'll work for food or homeless, please help. That would be poor stewardship and obviously, I think, an absurd use of your resources. But the truth is, this verse describes something even more radical, even more confrontational, even more against the grain of how we often think about the gospel. Rightly understood, this passage makes a way more controversial point than that you should give your money to the poor. This is one of those passages that grabs you by your spiritual lapels, (laughs) shakes you around, slaps you in the side of the head, and gets you to have a long, sober look at yourself in the mirror. In fact, I think one of the reasons people try to take this passage and use it, apply it by saying, hey, just give your money to the poor is because that kind of little $5 out the window here and $5 out the window there is much easier to do and to apply than to actually come to terms with the main point of this passage. Let me give you the main point here just with three little words. I'm gonna give you the principle, the picture, and finally the point. The principle, the picture, and then the point. That's the way James structures this passage. Let's look at the principle first. It's straightforward enough. What good is it, my brothers? The principle comes in the form of a question. If someone says he has faith but does not have works. The principle here is that faith without works is false faith. 
Faith without works is false faith. That's the main principle of this passage, that faith without works is in fact no faith at all. The sentence is structured here, as I said, in the form of a question. In English, you can have uh, a rhetorical question where the answer is implied by the tone of your voice. Like if I see one of my children getting up from the dinner table and heading over towards the trash can with half of their food still on their plate, I might say, you don't think you're really done with dinner, do you? And the way I say it, the strong implication is, why, no, I don't. Greek does not rely on the tone of voice. Greek has a sentence structure that conveys the implied answer to the question. And this sentence is structured in the negative, that the answer to this question is no, not at all. The question again, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? And the implied answer is it is no good at all. It is in fact good for nothing to say you have faith and do not have works. And notice here this expression says he has faith. It's intentionally distant. James didn't have the idiom yet a profession of faith, but if he did, he would have used it here. That's an American kind of idiom that means somebody made a profession of faith. It's just a way of saying somebody has said with their lips they're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a profession of faith. And normally when you use that kind of expression, it's not a vote of confidence, right? If someone says, hey, is so-and-so a believer? And you say, well, he says he is. (laughs) It's not exactly like, hey, I want to be handcuffed to him when he dies kind of answer. Is he a Christian? Well, he says so. Yikes. (laughs) And that's what James is dealing with here. If someone says he has faith, the idea is it's in quotes. Someone says he has faith, you know. It's not authentic faith we're talking about here. This is a person who with his lips is saying, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Perhaps he has, has said a prayer. Perhaps he has walked an aisle, so to speak. But he has made some kind of decision, some kind of external profession where he has declared with his lips that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. However, comma, this person does not have a changed life behind it. And so James's question is, what kind of faith is that? Is it good for salvation? Clearly not. But is it good for anything? And the answer is no, it is not. Now, as I said, this is a way more controversial point than you should give money to the poor people. This rubs against the the fur of evangelicalism in so many different ways. I mean, we have become accustomed to this kind of lowest common denominator Christianity, which says if somebody says that they're a Christian or they say a prayer or they make some kind of profession, that you never question that. And once saved, always saved. And and so if you make that kind of profession, that means you're, you're in forever, no matter what, which is clearly not a biblical understanding of saving faith. And The result of this is just massive confusion in people's minds. I mean, I often hear from parents who are genuinely confused about the spiritual condition of their kids. Their kids are now grown and and living away and they're not following Christ. But they made a spiritual profession when they were younger. They They said the sinner's prayer. They made some kind of profession of faith. And back when they were young, they had such earnest faith. I know that they they did. It was genuine faith back then. But now 
they're out in the world and, and they couldn't find a church with a GPS kind of thing and they, they're making, there's no fruit in their life at all. In fact, they probably wouldn't even profess faith now. I and mean, maybe if you, you know, ask them at the Thanksgiving table, they might say they're a Christian, <laughs> praise the Lord, but they're not doing anything that demonstrates it at all. And so I don't know what to think about them and it becomes such a confused thing in the person's mind. And it should not be confusing because faith without works is no faith at all. That's a straightforward spiritual principle. And I know that that can be discouraging for parents to hear, especially parents who have those children that have apostatized from the faith and have wandered away and it's so discouraging to hear, but I'm telling you, it is better for you to think rightly about your child's spiritual condition so that you can pray rightly and talk to him rightly than it is to think wrongly about it so you have a kind of false hope. I know that's difficult to process, but it is true. I mean, I don't want to discourage people who are here, but I have a bigger fear. My bigger fear would be giving somebody who says they have faith but have no works false hope. I'd rather them see their condition for what it is, which in this instance, good for nothing. In fact, James says, can that faith save him? It's structured the same way. Can that faith save him? And the answer is a resounding no. That faith cannot save him. Now, we're Protestants. We're all good Protestants here. We believe that salvation comes from faith alone. I'd like more of you to say it so I feel better about it. <laughs> Salvation comes from faith. Alone. I thought we were going to have to turn to Romans 2 here and start there. But. So James is not saying something counter to the Protestant tradition that it's actually faith and some other stuff that saves you. What he's saying here is that faith that does not come with a changed life is not authentic faith. It's not like you add authentic, you take authentic faith and you add other stuff to it to get saved. It's that authentic faith has other stuff baked in. And in this case, the person says they have authentic faith. They say they have this kind of faith, but they don't have the accompaniment. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. And this is not new with James. James is not inventing this out of left field here. This is uh, something that is taught throughout the scriptures. In fact, I said before that James is possibly, lots of people think James is the oldest of the New Testament books. It was the first New Testament book written. And that may very well be true. I tend to think that Matthew came before James just because of how much of James is drawn from Matthew. Now, I know James is the half-brother of Jesus, and so he didn't need to read the Gospel of Matthew to learn what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, if that makes sense. But it seems like he's just quoting it in so many different places. And this would be one of those places, especially the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, again, is not saying that you need faith and works to be saved, but he's saying that saving faith is more than saying faith. Saving faith is more than saying, Lord, Lord. That's the principle. And I know it can just cause discomfort for people when they think about it, but I don't know what else to do with verse 14 other than say it like that. I can't read verse 14 and come away with another way of saying this other than faith without works 
is dead. That's the principle. Here's the picture of the principle. That's going to come next. Now, before we get to the picture, let me help untie an ethical knot that many of you have in your minds. While it is not the Christian's job to fight poverty in the world, the Bible does make neglecting the poor in the church a much bigger deal than you might imagine. It's not a straight line from you're not supposed to eradicate homelessness in the world to therefore don't care about the poor. I mean, there's no connection there. Just because the Bible doesn't command us to fight homelessness and poverty in the world does not mean that we don't have compassion for the poor of the world and that we don't meet the material needs of the poor in the church. For example, James 2, verses 1 through 13, what we've been looking at the last few weeks, compares neglecting the poor in the church to adultery and murder. James says if you harbor prejudice or racism or uh, discriminatory actions towards the poor in the church, you are just like an adulterer. You're a murderer for, for all James cares. You've broken the whole law. So James makes that kind of uh, racist attitudes at the same level of murder. And often those attitudes are connected with poverty, of course. And this is, it's not even a New Testament point. In the Old Testament, do you know that the word compassion is the most frequently used word to describe God in the Old Testament? More than any other word, God is described as compassionate. And often that compassion is seen in his response to physical human suffering. You see this carry over in the New Testament where God is described as the source of compassion. He's the father of compassion, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. In the same way God is the father of lights, he's the father of Jesus Christ, he's the father of the Son. He's also the father of compassion. Light comes from the Father, revelation comes from the Father. The Son, in that sense, is begotten by the Father. And compassion flows from the Father through the Son to the world. And you see this in Jesus' ministry. He comes to the world. He looks on the crowds and the scripture says he had compassion on them, so he taught them. That's Matthew again. He had compassion on the sick, so he heals them. He had compassion on the blind men, so he gives them their sight. He has compassion on the weeping mother, so he resurrects her son. And of course, in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, the father from a long way off sees the prodigal returning and he has compassion on the the son and runs out to him. All this is practical. The idea is God is compassion. He shows us his compassion through Jesus Christ. So you should have compassion on those in need. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul follows his declaration that God is the father of compassion with a command for us to comfort others in their need because of the comfort given to us through Jesus Christ. A person who says they're a child of God but refuses to show compassion on others demonstrates they have not received that compassion from God. Now, practically how this plays out, as I mentioned, giving somebody with a sign that says, we'll work for food or, uh, you know, homeless, please help. Giving them money often just fuels their, their uh, sinful condition or their dependency. It's not a wise use of, of time or resources. What would be a wise use is it would be actually engaging them in a conversation, sharing the, the gospel with them. And, and you know, that's an expression of compassion. Let me give you a practical example of this. In Acts chapter 2, the chapter ends with the church 
liquidating many of their assets and pooling all of their money and changing it to silver and gold and keeping it together. That's how Acts chapter two ends, so they can meet each other's needs in the church. Acts chapter three, the very next verse, begins with a a man who is lame from birth begging and he asks Peter and John for money. And do you remember what Peter and John say? Silver and gold we have not. Now pause there. How is that possible? The verse before that, they had all of the silver and gold. I mean, did they lose it? Did they forget? Is, it, is this like a, I'm sorry, all I have is a credit card kind of answer? Of course not. The implication is that when the church pooled its resources, it was to meet the needs of the church. And this is how you see it played out through the rest of the New Testament. Widows should have their needs met if they have a reputation for good deeds and are members of the church. They should be enrolled and put on the list. And then the church should take care of their needs. That's the basic New Testament principle. But notice what Peter and John say in Acts 3 to the person. We don't have money for you, but what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And they heal the person. The man goes away rejoicing, healed, and converted. And at the point he becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, now he has access to the silver and gold of the church. (laughs) We don't have the ability to heal people like that today. We have the ability to preach the gospel to those in need. There was a person a few months ago, though, who came third hour and was working his way through the back over there. He had an elderly gentleman with a cane, and he had a sign that said he was, I forget, it was like Romanian or Hungarian immigrant or something, and that he needed money for tutoring for his grandkids or something. He was working his way through the back row over there with his cane during the worship service, showing people his sign and trying to get money over there, and I'm sure some of you remember this, and Steve Hawley came at him from the aisle and he saw Steve and recognized Steve and went out this door and Steve went around and went out the door and sees the guy running to his car. (laughs) And Steve is claiming that as an Acts 3 style healing, but. (laughs) I'm not sure about, about that. And I say that I know that there are those who are in poverty because not of their own willful desire to to steal, but because of uh, physical disability or mental issues, and they are deserving of compassion. It's a complex issue. But that's not what James is dealing with here. He's not gonna paint you that picture. And if you read what we see in James 2 through the lens of the random person at the street with the sign that says, we'll work for food, you're going to miss the main thrust of what James is saying. So get that random person out of your mind. James is not giving you a mandate for social action here. He's, he's barking up a different tree. James is gonna give you a hypothetical situation, much like Jesus told parables. And in Jesus' parables, he often invented a story that was so extreme it would have been absurd to make a point. And that, James is doing just what his half-brother does with the same thing. He's gonna invent a little description here, just two verses long, that is so extreme it's, it's not even believable to make his point. Let's look at it. Verse 15, if a brother or sister, so that's right there, this is a word, Adelphoi in the Greek, that is used specifically for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. It can speak of your own uh, human brother or sister, but apart from that kind of relationship, in the New Testament, this word is only used without exception to refer to believers in Jesus Christ. It is never used to describe those outside of the church. Everybody in the world 
is a brother in a sense or a sister in a sense because we all come from Adam through Noah's family. So that is true. That's not how that word is used in the New Testament though. The New Testament does not use this word to describe those who are brothers in Adam. It only uses it to describe those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, that God is our father. We've been adopted through Christ. God's not ashamed to call us his children. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers because we are all brothers and sisters in the faith. That's this word. So it's one of those people. Now, how if you saw a brother or sister in Christ, if you saw a random person in the world, how would you know that they're a Christian? And so the implication very clearly here is that you recognize this person. The fictional person James is drawing for you here, this scene that he's drawing, it hinges, the whole power of this hinges on your ability to identify the person in this story. He's a recognizable member of your church. That's the point of this. Someone that you see week in and week out. Maybe they check in your children at the computer kiosk over there. Maybe it's the usher that hands you the bulletin. The point is it's somebody that you recognize. You don't, maybe don't know their name, but there's no mistaking it. This is a person who is a faithful member of your church and you encounter them. I think the implication here is right outside the church. And you find them poorly clothed. That Greek word there, gymnos, it means naked. In fact, when the same kind of scene is described in Matthew 25, there it's translated naked. Sometimes there's examples in the Greek world of it being used just to describe undergarments. But the idea here is that you encounter somebody you know from church, right outside the church. Put them in the crosswalk at Braddock. And there they are. They're hardly wearing any clothes. It's to the point that they're indecent. The implication, of course, is that they're, they're shivering. It's cold out. And they lack the next phrase, daily food. That word is what you're praying for in, in the Lord's Prayer. You're praying for your daily bread. Well, this person's praying for it and doesn't have it. They're out there cold, shivering, ill-clad, ill-fed, on the brink of death, malnourished, clothes visibly tattered, and you encounter them in the crosswalk. It's the 11 o'clock service, so I'm sure you've all parked at the remote lots. Not because you're godly and you prefer other people, but just because the lot was full, and so you've all parked at the remote lots. <laughs> and again, this is an extreme story. This would never actually happen, but let's pretend one of you, just one, were to leave service early. Again, you would never do this. But one of you leaves service early. 12.04. Get up and head out and the shuttles aren't quite ready yet. They're going to wait another six minutes for their first run and you want to wait for that. And so you head out to the crosswalk there at Braddock to make it. You got a swim meet to go to. That's where you're headed. You're going to a swim meet. Good reason. And you're crossing the crosswalk and there in the median is someone that you recognize from church. You see them all the time. You know them. And they're in that condition. They're on the brink of death. Tattered clothes. Sitting down in the median there at Braddock. How do you respond to that encounter? How do you respond? As I mentioned, Jesus told a similar story in Matthew 25. He describes the sheep and goats judgment. Those who are alive at the return of the Lord, 
will be gathered together. They'll be divided in Matthew 25 between the sheep and the goats. And the distinguishing feature in Matthew 25 is the sheep are gathered together. And, and first of all, they're surprised. They want to know why are they there? And so they ask the, the Lord, why are we in the sheep category? And, and they're believers in Christ, of course. And he's, that's seen in the answer in Matthew 25, verse 35. Jesus says, because I was hungry and you gave me food, I was naked. There's that word, and you clothed me. It's the same image there. And so they are surprised at this because, again, Jesus hasn't been on the earth in thousands of years at the point of this story. And so they are, are, are confused. And so they ask Jesus, bah. No, they ask Jesus, when did we do this for you? We don't remember giving you food. We don't remember giving you clothes. And Jesus says, well, Matthew 25, verse 40, as you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did to me. That word again, brothers and sisters. There are those in the faith that are in physical need. In the United States, we don't have these so much in the church. I can think of my time at Emmanuel, six years, I know a few homeless people that have come to faith in Christ and joined our church, and our church has been very generous to them and have met their needs. And I'm not preaching this passage because we do a poor job at this. It's just the next part of James. And there have been encounters in Emmanuel where we have demonstrated our obedience to this, this concept for sure, but generally speaking, the American church, you have more opportunities to demonstrate the kind of sheep-goat dynamic internationally, that we have missionaries around the world where poverty is, is gripping their churches, and we have done a great job of meeting their needs. We take offerings all the time to meet their needs, and that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25. We give our resources to those churches that are in need, and so Jesus says, you've done it to me. But that's not what happens here in James 2, is it? In James 2, you meet the brother or sister in the crosswalk there, and you don't give him clothing. You don't give him water. Instead, you say something to him. Now, what do you say? Now, had James given his listeners or his readers more time to come up with their own answer, they would have said something better than the words James puts in their mouth, for sure. In this version, James 2, verse 16, one of you, so he's speaking to the whole congregation, one of you leaves early and finds the guy on the crosswalk, and that one of you says to them. Notice the person is talking to them in the plural even. It's one person there on the crosswalk, but the person won't even have the moral turpitude to look him in the eye and address him as an individual. Instead, the person dismisses him as a whole class of people, speaks to him with the plural, like, I hope it works well for you guys speaks them in the plural with this answer. Shalom, go in peace. That's a Hebrew greeting or a Hebrew benediction with the grace of God. Shalom, go with the peace of God. That's what you say to them. What a shocking thing to say. You don't do anything to help them, but you give them a platitude and well wishes. The phrase shalom could not be more inappropriate for this context. One commentator says, it's so extremely offensive, that kind of response where you say shalom to that kind of person is so offensive, the person who says it would be guilty of violating the third commandment, which is to take the name of the Lord in vain. That's what that means right there. You want an example of taking the name of the Lord in vain? Here's one for you. Shalom to this person. Goodbye, I wish you well. May God be with you because I sure won't be. It's so shocking, it's almost unbelievable. One commentator writes, quote, this is indicative of a total disregard for the welfare of others to the point of absurdity. And it's even compounded when you don't just stop talking after shalom, but you go on and you say, 
Be warmed and well-fed or be warmed and filled. Not just may the grace of God go with you, but I hope you get warm somehow. The English expression might be, oh, go in the grace of God and I sure hope it doesn't rain. Supposed to warm up this afternoon. Good luck with that. And well-fed. Anyway, is the food going to fall from the sky? What do you think will happen to this person? And James is dismissing the whole congregation because of this. He says, what good is that? Without, middle of verse 16, giving him the things needed for the body. That phrase, needed for the body, it's the phrase daily sustenance, daily food. The implication is that that person is going to die because they're not fed. You don't give him what he needs to live. So you walk across by him at 12.04. You say, go in the grace of God, hope it doesn't rain, and carry on to your car. Between that time and 12.15, the person dies. They're dead now out there. And James has a question. As you imagine that dead body in the Braddock crosswalk, here's your question. What good was your greeting to that person? What good did your greeting do? When you said shalom to him, how did it benefit that person? Did it benefit him at all? Could it warm him? Could it feed him? Could it extend his life another five minutes until an actual believer stumbled across his path? I mean, could, did your greeting do anything in the whole world of benefit to that person? And the answer is clearly no. What good is that? It is good for nothing. Now, the truth is, this is how the story ends. It's a sad ending of this, this hypothetical story. But the truth is, this is how the story ends for the poor in the world all the time. Poor people in the world die like this all the time. They stand out there and they beg for money. And we're often shielded from that in the United States. But in the rest of the world, generally speaking, poor people will beg for money. They will not get it and they will die. That's how the story goes. But this is not a story about somebody in the world. This is a story about somebody in the church, in the crosswalk outside of the church as Christians are passing by him and he dies forgotten. What good is it? Jesus Christ was rich, 2 Corinthians says. Doesn't mean material rich, it means he's in glory in heaven, rich. And for our sake, he became poor. Again, it doesn't mean he led a lifestyle of earthly poverty, although he had no place to rest his head, but it's not what it's talking about. It means that he left the glories of heaven and the worship of angels to come to earth and have none of the glories of heaven, to be clothed in the likeness of Adam and sinful flesh. He became poor. And it's humbling for us to hear our own human condition described as poverty, but from the perspective of heaven, it is. And he led that impoverished life. At the end of his life, he has our sins imputed to him. Choose a sin. Let's choose greed. Your greed, if you're a believer in Christ, was imputed to Jesus Christ so that at the end of his life, he suffers on the cross, bearing God's wrath 
for your greed. You think that you have security in life because you have money. You think your 401k will give you security or your work ethic will keep bad things from happening to you. You think that in your mind that is greed and it is pride and it is arrogance and Jesus died to bear the punishment for that sin. And then he rises from the grave three days later to show that that sin has been atoned for and that there is a hope, a greater hope than this world, a greater hope than your money, a greater hope than your savings account, a greater hope than your work ethic. There is a greater hope, namely the eternal life as demonstrated by the resurrection. And then he ascends to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit to this world that comes into your life and changes your heart and draws you to Christ. And as you confess your faith with your lips, you have a new nature. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You no longer trust in your money, you no longer trust in your resources, you're converted because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. What good is that story if at the very end of it, the Holy Spirit comes to your life, you make a profession of faith with your lips, and then you do not change your life. You keep right on living as you've always lived before, trusting your money, just like you did on Thursday, you keep doing it on Monday. You trust in your money, you trust in your life, and you trust in your work ethic to keep you out of trouble. You, you hold on to your cash. I mean, you get why those in the world would hold on to their money, but you do so even though you profess Christ. What good is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ at that point? Is it good for anything at all? And the answer is no. Better to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die if that's your attitude. So that's the picture. And now finally, the point. The point that dead faith is no faith. So also, James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If at the end of that description of the gospel, you leave and you say, my life's not changed. I don't have a new nature. I don't have new desires. I don't have new love. First Corinthians 7, Paul says, for those in the world, they should hold on to their possessions. Use them, hold on to them, enjoy them. That's all there is. It's a short ride, okay? Enjoy it while you're on it. <laughs> But if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, then those with possessions live as if they had none. In other words, be generous with your possessions. Meet the needs of other people because he rose from the grave. And it's a, it is a straight line from he rose from the grave so you shouldn't hold on to things in this world. Again, at Emmanuel Bible Church, people are so generous with their money. This is not designed to goad you into more or anything. That People are very, very generous with their money here. But follow James's argument, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you would want to hold on to your resources. But because he did, you recognize there's something on the other side of glory. This is not new with Jesus and Matthew 7. It's not new with James and James 2. It's taught over and over again. The scripture, I think of 1 John 3, 17, very clear description of this. John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, notice that phrase, brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? If you see a person in the church in physical need and you close your heart against them, how, how can you even say that you're a Christian? Now, are you getting the absurdity of this picture? James painted this absurd, ridiculously absurd picture 
of a church member dying half naked, starving to death in the crosswalk outside of church. That's James's picture. What good is your faith if that happens? And the answer is clearly it's not good at all. It's such an absurd story. Now that is the picture to make this point. If you say you have faith, but you do not have a changed life, it is is just as absurd. That's what the picture is of. So someone who says, with my lips, I'm a Christian, never turns from their sin, does not have the old passed away, behold, the new has come. Would you say that they have faith? And James's answer is, remember, the, the faith here is from their lips. They're saying it back in verse 15. If, verse 14, they say they have faith, but if they say it and it does not have the changed life, it is dead. Now, saving faith can be a lot of things, but it can't be dead. (laughs) If saving faith can be dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Because he rose from the grave, saving faith will never be dead faith. I have a sob story for you. I used to work at a car dealership in New Mexico. My dad worked at it. Actually, he was a mechanic there and the service manager, and I was just a a lot lizard was the term we used, (laughs) taking out the trash and stuff. My younger brother bought a sob. Told you it would be a sob story. (laughs) He bought a sob from a junkyard couldn't drive it, car wouldn't start. Shows up at this BMW dealership on the back of a flatbed tow truck. Thing was rusted out beyond belief. I don't know what color it came off the assembly line in, but it looked like the pulpit here, this color of brown. Looked like it had spent its entire existence on a Hawaiian island or something. Totally rusted out. He lowered off the truck, put it right next to a bunch of BMW 7 Series in the lot. Owner of the dealership comes out just looking at it, going, oh my goodness. He tells my brother, you must have won first prize in a contest to get this car. Second prize would have been two of them, I think. <laughs> so it's on the lot, and I wonder why I want to start. My brother opens the hood. Lo and behold, there's no engine. That explains the $100 price tag, at least. <laughs> There's no engine. What good is a sob? And don't put the period there, although you might be tempted to. What good is a sob (laughs) if it doesn't have an engine? What good is saving faith if it does not have works? Lord, we're thankful that you don't give us a partial savior. You didn't give us a little bit of the Holy Spirit. But you have shared with us the riches of heaven in Jesus Christ. So we come this morning in Christ through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to rejoice with the abundance that you have shared with us. Lord, we delight in your kindness, knowing that your kindness of course, produces repentance and a changed life. We're grateful the gospel does change people's lives. I pray, 
Lord, this morning, for anyone here who has never given you their life, they've made professions with their lips, but they have never opened their hand and let go of their life. I pray this morning that you would pry their life from their fingers, change their heart, help them see that with you, there is only riches. With you, there is much work to be done. With you, there is joy. There is saving faith. Lord, we know that faith is not engineered in the heart, but it's a gift, a gift from God. And so I pray that you would make our church rich in faith. We're thankful for the privileges to take your gospel into the world. We pray that you'd be with us this week as we do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.